the study of race, politics, and culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Megan Ming Francis, soon to be associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington. <laughs> she holds a PhD in politics from Princeton and specializes in American politics, race and politics, and American political development. Her first book entitled Civil Rights, the Making of the Modern American State reveals how the NAACP early campaign against state-sanctioned white supremacy and racial violence shaped the civil rights movement. Currently, Francis has worked on a second book project that examines the role of the criminal justice system in the rebuilding of the Southern political and economic power after the Civil War. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Michael? Oh, I'm doing okay. So let's start with, you've been with the Race and Capitalism Project since the very beginning. Uh, it's gone through many different instantiations in a short period of time. And you've been instrumental in many parts of it, not the least of which is working on the, and leading the history section. So right. what I wanted to ask you about was what was the source of your initial interest in the, in the, in the topic of race and capitalism? Oh, well, <laughs> I think if I have to think about when did my interest um, in race and capitalism begin, it, it actually goes back to... Uh, my first year um, in undergrad at Rice University. So I actually began Rice University as a computer science major. So whatever way you look at it, I either like how far did I come or how far did I fall? Um, but I was originally a computer science major and I actually did not like any of my classes. I've always been really interested and curious about the world around me. Um, and so my second semester at Rice, I just took a bunch of classes. I had no idea what economics and nor political science was, but I took somehow econ and political science classes and I loved them. Um, and in part, you know, it was like intro microeconomics and then a class on American, American politics. Um, and part of the reason that like, that for me at least fascinated me about these classes was that it helped me understand the world around me better. It helped me understand the area that I grew up in and the people that I knew in terms of why structures and why institutions don't always meet them, right? Um, and why some are left behind. And I began to understand through these classes um, why things were structured the way it were, well, way, the way they were. Um, and it incited in me kind of an appetite to actually study this and to learn more. So actually, I became a political science um, an economics double major at Rice, um, and that propelled obviously my studies at Princeton. I'm very much interested um, in race, specifically black politics, um, the ways that kind of issues around capitalism and especially around kind of economic inequality structure, especially communities and neighborhoods for black people. And at the time, especially in graduate school, my main interest was around the criminal justice system. So that's kind of like my background, um, and actually kind of how I got interested in this concept. Um, there was actually for a while, 
there was uh, th this notion that I only, at least some people told me that I could only study really kind of race and political science through focusing on specifically racial attitudes, right? So this idea that kind of how do blacks, how do Latinos, how do whites feel about these issues? But it didn't get at what I was really interested in, which is for me at least, why does the institution of kind of the criminal justice system, why is it, um, why does it disproportionately people of color, um, and why our neighborhoods structured the way they were. Uh, so I kind of, I pushed up against that, and then I got really interested in history and also in the law, um, in kind of the development of political institutions and, how, and thinking about more historically, why do we get a criminal justice system? At the time, I was in graduate school, 2003, 2000, through, 2003 through 2008, that looks the way it does. And like history, kind of legal history um, and historical focus on American institutions helped me get there. Uh, so that's how, the longer story about how I got here. Part of what your work is justifiably famous and renowned about is the role that you show that social movements play in shaping political institutions. Can you say a little bit more about the role that, that the NAACP played in the early criminal, shaping the early criminal justice system? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a story that is told um, in in American law schools and in political history that says there's this big case. Um, if you think about kind of how do we get to modern criminal procedure, right? So we have these cases in the '60s around kind of Miranda, the Gideon case, um, and that that is often seen as kind of like the height of the modern criminal procedure revolution, where we get these new safeguards, especially for defendants. Um, but there's a, obviously a longer legal history to the to kind of the criminal procedure revolution. And there's always been this one case that legal scholars talk about called Moore v. Dempsey, a case decided by the Supreme Court in 1923. And it basically kind of the very short short thing about this case is that it's a case around 12 African-American men, men in Arkansas who are sentenced to die like in a kangaroo trial. Um, and the case reaches the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court um, says that no, you cannot you cannot kill these men, this was a mob-dominated trial. And the reason why this case is so significant is because it's the first case in modern criminal procedure doctrine, right? So the very first case in which the federal, right, the federal courts actually intervene in state criminal court trials. Because before this case, Louisiana had a different criminal kind of the way in which criminal law worked than, let's say, New York or Pennsylvania, right? So this is the first case where the federal courts come in and say, hey, you know what? Like, maybe we should not have mob-dominated trials, right? Maybe that violates the Constitution. Um, and so the kind of the interesting thing about this case is that it's always read as that, right, this kind of notions of, like, liberalism, that the Supreme Court justices had no choice but to decide this case in this way, to defend these black men, because the facts of this case were just so egregious, right? Such egregious racism. And I was always like, <laughs> graduate school, it just didn't make sense, right? I mean, in terms of when the, the incident happened in 1919 and everything that I knew at the time about African-American history was that that was a very, a very contentious time, especially in the South, for black people. And black people were being killed in state, in, in criminal courts, local and state courts, all the time, right? Um, it was just kind of the idea of legal lynching. This is what it was. Um, so I, I, that, I, that narrative never really sat well with me. Um, and so what I did is um, I used NAACP archives and I went into the archives 
Um, and then this new story started to develop about the NAACP for me that I, for some reason had never been told at length in any of the stuff that I'd read in history and in um, the law, which was the NAACP investigated, they litigated this case, they tried to bring it to the Supreme Court twice and they were denied. Um, and then finally on their third appeal, it was actually finally heard. Um, in front of the Supreme Court. So this was not a case about basically kind of like white liberalism, right, coming to save and coming to defend these black defendants. It actually was at the NAACP, and it wasn't just the leadership of the NAACP. It was also people on the ground mobilized behind this case, right, and saw this as a grave injustice and wanted to organize around this, and that this huge breakthrough in criminal procedure would never have happened if it wasn't for the NAACP bringing up this case, right? And so this is kind of the first breakthrough way before what we think about as civil rights in terms of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. But this case is in 1923 and the NAACP is actually able to change at some level federal court power um, through this case. So um, social movements matters in like areas and times in which for some reason the law and political history has not accounted for. I think one of the puzzles that people have when they first read your book, particularly the introductory chapters, is why did the NAACP stop focusing on criminal justice to the degree that they did? So one of the most interesting things for me was why did the NAACP move from an organization that we now really much know or identify as focused on issues around education and voting um, from an organization, at least at its beginning, that was really truly focused on issues of lynching, the criminal justice system, and racial violence. And so kind of how did this change happen? And for me, um, at least, that was the most interesting change. I, and I happened upon that by accident. I actually began my dissertation, which is now a book, with these kind of lofty ideals of a graduate student that I was going to figure out kind of like what is the role of civil rights organizations in the buildup of the 70s and 80s um, of kind of this big kind of incarceration, carceral state. Um, and I had this idea that the NAACP uh, was so focused on education and issues of voting, so-called respectable issues, um, and that they, they, they turned their backs at some level on issues of criminal justice besides de the death penalty, because the NAACP, to their credit, have always been really focused on issues around the death penalty. Um, and, and so part of my thing was like, let's focus on the NAACP, but I didn't know how to do archival research because in political science, they don't really train you to do archival research, um, at least when I was at Princeton at the time. So what I did is I didn't know anything. So I started the archives when the NAACP started, which was, and I didn't realize this, in 1909. Uh, so I just read because, again, I didn't really know how to properly do archival research. So I just read from the beginning. Uh, and so, and what I found out, at least for me, was a story about the NAACP that I had never heard before in any of my um, readings on the NAACP um, and the civil rights movement, which was this organization that was really just focused on issues of lynching. Because, and this is said in kind of the words of Roy Nash, who was one of the the, the kind of the leaders of the NAACP in this time period was that because one of the one of the leaders was like one of the other leaders asked why aren't we focused on these other issues and it, he was referring to at the time issues around voting and housing and education 
And Roy Nash responds, the American Negro first needs to under, needs to live without a rope around his neck, right? And so this was this idea that before blacks can like, before we, we can fight for other rights, we have to fight for the right to live first. That is that is always the ultimate fight. Um, and so that's, that's for at least kind of the first decade and a half, that was all that I was reading about in terms of the NAACP. But then there's this interesting thing and the, around 1928-1929, a change happens, and the NAACP, as any of those who know the history of the Brown case, um, know that the, that there's this big thunder behind it. Um, and for me, that was really interesting, um, because what we know that is that the NAACP begins their fight around segregated education um, around around 1933, kind of, it really takes off, um, obviously, um, in the early 40s, but that's really when it begins. Um, and so for me, one of the, this paper that I have currently under review makes an argument that the NAACP's agenda was co-opted by the Garland Fund, which was a radical white philanthropy. The Garland Fund was very much interested in, in issues of labor and education and wasn't really interested in issues of criminal justice and racial violence. There's a really fascinating inter interchange that happens or exchange that happens over a five-year period from 1925 to about 1930 when the, the Garland Fund is really looking for what is an organization um, that, can, that can like lead a big charge for social change in the United States. Um, and I think something mirroring, mirroring a lot of what happens today around funders and social movements is that these kind of white liberals at the Garland Fund had an idea about how they believed at some level that kind of social justice should look like, and, and at least an agenda, right? That the agenda should be about labor and it should be about education. Um, they approached the NAACP because the NAACP was at some level well-known um, and they had achieved this big Supreme Court victory in Moore v. Dempsey in 1923. So they, that, that really kind of like sparked the interest of the Garland Fund. But they weren't really interested in continuing this focus on racial violence um, and on criminal justice. They were interested in using kind of the legal expertise of the NAACP to focus on an issue around education. So there's this really, uh, like what I said in terms of a fascinating exchange between, um, at the time, Walter White and James Walden Johnson and two members from the Garland Fund. And so the Garland Fund is trying to get Walter White and James Walden Johnson to request money for like this big 10 year education like plan, right? To go after segregated education. Um, and, J and James Walden Johnson and Walter White push back repeatedly. And they're like, no, the issue, the most important rights issue right now is lynching and racial violence that African-Americans in the North and the South are facing. Um, but at the end of the day, this was an organization like so many different kind of different different marginalized organizations are. They were strapped for cash. They had very little money. The NAACP in 1928 was not the NAACP of today. They were always basically three three months of funding from folding. So they needed money, and the and the Garland Fund proposed a hundred thousand dollar grant to go after education. It was the most money the NAACP had ever seen before. Um, in, the, in, in the organization's young existence. What we see after 1933, after the NAACP gets this grant, is they go after education. And they, and they get what is, what is, I think, an arguably a huge, groundbreaking, landmark decision from the Supreme Court in Brown that changes at some level the landscape 
of civil rights in this country, and it changes what, what especially people of color believe is possible through the law, through litigating court cases, right? But at, but at the same time, I think that that would, in our memory, at least in our imaginings of kind of what people of color can get from the law, there's also these really important drawbacks and things that are missing. And I think that, at least in the way that I tell it, at least from my understanding of of the archives that I've read, the papers that I've read, um, is that racial violence and criminal justice ultimately fall out of the NAACP's agenda and ultimately, right, fall out of the traditional civil rights agenda of what we as a nation believe is necessary for black liberation. Um, it, it like in terms of kind of the 50s and 60s civil rights agenda became something that was very much constituted around kind of this notion around education and voting and housing, housing desegregation, which is so interesting in terms of, I think, you know, uh, criminal justice and, and issues around racial violence got left out. And so they're obviously reappearing the last last three, four years, and, and people are like, what's going on? I cannot believe this. But that issues around racial violence have always been, at least from the early NAACP and early rights movement, right, have always been the center of what it means to be free and equal in this country. That was a very long response, Michael. I apologize. That was quite good, and I'm glad, glad we have it. So one of the critical aspects of your upcoming work is that you're also still working on criminal justice in the South and how it's tied to the economy. Could you say that a few more words about that? Right. So this is one of the interesting things. I, I As a political scientist, and I my first book focuses on essentially between 1900 and 1925, and I always imagined that I would go forward, uh, but somehow I'm, somehow I'm being pushed back. One of the... In, uh, one of the, the 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 fascinating things for me in writing my first book was this issue around that like prompted the 1919 um, arrest of these 12 men 12 men in Phillips County, Arkansas. So the incident that that led to this big arrest and then ultimately led to one of the bloodiest uh, massacres of African Americans in the 20th century. 300 black men, women, and children were mowed down in Phillips County, Arkansas was that essentially there was a number of planters, sharecroppers, black sharecroppers, who were trying to organize against exploitive white landowners who were trying to basically cheat them out of their wages that they had earned. And so these men were organizing in a church. And then there, these landowners had heard about had heard about them organizing and then followed them and then fired into the church. And then a few of these men also fired back. But it was this kind of idea about these black men who were organizing just to protect themselves from their wages was seen as this huge threat to at some level, right, at the very base level, white supremacy and white rule in the South. So that's what actually kind of like basically like lit the match um, of this incident in 1919. It, the reason why I'm, I'm I'm saying that right now is for me I I got very very much interested in the intersection and the relation between black labor, white exploitation, and and at some level the development um, kind of of modern capitalism, 
And so when, when I say this, that, that that there was a very, very, very real fear here in a story about kind of racialized labor and the interaction between racial violence and modern capitalism, that racial violence, this idea of firing at these men was necessary to maintain a certain level of profit, right? An exploitive level of profit between blacks who are working this land and whites who actually owned this land. Um, and so that's what kind of I got really interested in. I, and so I got pushed back to the kind of the period um, post-Reconstruction and thinking about um, how do we actually get prisons and, and how does a kind of a, like a Southern criminal justice system develop um, after the Civil War? Uh, if we know, at least for some of us who've read a lot, of kind of after the Civil War in the state of the South, the infrastructure of the South is demolished by Union troops. And so for the most part, we know two things. One, we know at the end of the Civil War that there isn't a place necessarily to hold black people who are in prison. And we also know that it, like in the period of slavery and bondage, that blacks were mostly punished on slave plantations and jails and prisons were mostly used for white offenders. What we also know, though, as most Southern historians have shown, is at the end, after Reconstruction, we know that the prisons and the criminal justice system is one of the main ways that African-American rights are denied in the South. So how, at some level, do we get from uh, kind of this, 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 this larger criminal justice apparatus in the South from something in which there never was? Uh, so what I started to look at were a few states, um, Georgia, Arkansas, and Tennessee, initially. Um, and I wanted to examine how did these states develop a type of kind of an understanding, at least, of criminal justice, um, of prisons, and also how, for so many of these states, did they fill them with mostly black prisoners? Um, and so for me, that led to a kind of another really interesting finding, which is that many companies um, were actually using these so-called black convicts um, as a way to build profit. So whether that was, so one of the interesting things, right, is that after after the Civil War, plantations are still around, but how do you how do you maintain workers on these plantations in the absence of legal slavery? Uh, so one of the things that happens is that a number of plantation owners lease out these black convicts. Also, how do how does the South rebuild? Right? How do how do buildings come up? How do roads get laid? How does how does railroad track get laid as well? And really and. Oftentimes, it was black convicts who were laying down track, who were re who were digging and like redoing these roads. Um, and so, one of the stories that I'm really interested in right now, and kind of in the throes of it, is thinking about black convicts in the South and the development of modern capitalism. Um, and it's not just a Southern story, right? That this is also a national story about the way in which that Northern entrepreneurs saw economic prospects and saw a profit in using Southern black convicts um, in their companies. So that's part of the next project that I'm trying to develop. Great. One of the themes that both of your projects really highlight that unfortunately I think reflect, um, have a serious meaning for our times is the interaction between civil liberties, social movement funding, and how do organizations protect civil and human rights in a period of repression and attacks on marginalized groups, be they blacks, Muslims, uh, Latino uh, immigrants, or other populations in our times. How do you see these things working out today? 
Oh, that's good. Um, so this is the question. I'm not a rookie. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So this, I mean, so this question is about it's at some level, and this is a question for you, Michael, um, about kind of like how do groups organize today given the current given the current political climate? It is, and it's it's how do we organize today, but also how does the interaction? I mean, one of the articles I read today just by chance is that uh, one of the unions that I used to be a member of, in fact, in, uh, the SEIU, just um, slashed its budget by 10%, uh, although it's going to try to protect the fight for 15 movement because they expect the new Supreme Court to deny funding to uh, unions uh, once the Ninth Justice is, uh, is stolen. Uh, so... <laughs> um, um, I think in general, um, social movement organization unions on um, the last two podcasts have been with um, um, scholars and activists who um, are very involved in the union movement. Everybody's worried about how do you fund, go forward, social movement um, organizing and, and protect, uh, particularly in an environment where everyone's expecting uh, attacks on worker rights and attacks on labor, attacks on immigrants, attacks on uh, religious minorities, particularly Muslims, and, and attacks yeah. on people of color. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be a huge issue moving forward. So I think one of, the th one of the things that has been really exciting over the last two years is the number of groups that have been mobilized, that have new energy, um, that are out there um, in the streets making the case. One of the issues, though, that will come up is, is this is this concern that you just laid out, which is one around funding. At the end of the day, organizations need funds to survive and to do the important work that they do. At least for me in terms of uh, this analysis about the, the NAACP and their relationship with the Garland Fund um, and this what I feel is agenda co-optation is a very real concern for all types of rights groups right now. Um, and it's a concern that I don't think a lot of groups have have given enough attention to in terms of there's always, I think, funders with their own agendas of how they believe that money should be spent. Ideas about how the best way, kind of the best issues that movements should go after and also the best strategies to go after um, these important issues. One of the things I think that's going to be crucial moving forwards is a pushback on funder at some level, and I'm going to call, this, call, call it this, funder ownership of social movements. There's this, I think, um, it's interesting thing, at least in the philanthropy community, about how oftentimes funders, you know, and, and if I give you a million dollars for this cause, they often want, they want to see results immediately. And everything for anybody who's done social movements knows that it takes a lot of time. We didn't get civil rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, right? Because just in like this like two year or five year time span, that is decades long. That's a huge struggle. Um, and I think I think that's one of the the complicating aspects, especially when I talk to people today about like, oh, does Black li Black Lives Matter didn't accomplish that much? If you expected Black Lives Matter to solve all racial injustice in a year, then you definitely what you, your main thing that you need to do responsibility is to do more reading about struggles and about kind of movements. So I think one of the things in terms of moving forwards, especially in terms of a relationship with funders and movements is to really have an open and honest conversation and to push back and to make the case to funders. 
Because at, at the end of the day, not all, but most funders really believe in the work that they do, really want to create a change. Sometimes their ego is about that and, and their belief that they know what's right gets in the way. But oftentimes, I mean, this I, I do believe that they do want to create change, but they do need pushback in terms of what is the right way to actually create the change that they want. Um, so I think that, especially in terms of whether it's groups around disabilities, whether it's around Arabs and Muslims, and, and so many of those important battles, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's around these immigrant detention prisons that are, th that all of these different groups who are doing this important work, they need funding, but they need funders who are willing to be flexible and, and are willing to let the visions of these movements come first and not their board come first. I um, hope that happens, but I guess I'm a little bit pessimistic know, for two reasons. Um, <laughs> one reason is just, um, I think, not for people like you who know the history, but for a lot of, uh, in some ways, older uh, activists, there's a case of um, selective amnesia. And we, we forget, for example, to use one to to use the example of Black Studies, and I I did my identify myself more as being a scholar of Black Studies yeah. and a political scientist. Is that the Black Studies movement, whether it was at San Francisco State uh, with the Revolutionary Nationalists who started Black Studies there, um, mm -hmm. or at campuses like Stanford or where what have you? or Merritt College, um, where it was the Black Panther Party. Black Studies started off as a very tight, um, community-driven movement between students and community activists and was seen as a tool for liberation of black people. And Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies had to various degrees, and Women's Studies had similar roots. They were uh -huh. tied to communities of activists and students who want to use knowledge as a tool for the liberation and protection uh, of marginalized groups. Right. But the Ford Foundation stepped in and massively uh -huh. funded black studies programs. Uh -huh. And certainly I'm sure there were some good aspirations there, but it also served to discipline in both the Foucauldian sense and in the more ordinary <laughs> language sense, black studies programs where the ties were cut with community groups. They were much more oriented toward publishing the next scholarly article, which certainly uh. did not hurt my career. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but much less focused on struggle and ties to black workers on campus, for example, right. or, or to um, young youth activists, for that matter, as well. Um, mm -hmm. And the one time I actually did archival work um, that was actually fairly good was in graduate school. I did a project on the way that the Ford Foundation and other foundations were funding community programs in black communities in the 1950s and early 1960s, uh, great cities programs and the like. Uh -huh. And it was a very strange mixture of some very, very talented and progressive white activists and scholars on one hand, and people that had come out of the Defense Department and who would go on to lead the Vietnam War, who were very much involved in counterinsurgency. So we can't, I think, we have to, I think that the response of a lot of organizations in the late 60s and 70s not to take money from NGOs, well, we didn't call them at the time, but NGOs, um, mm. was wrong. I think we have to be much more selective and strategic about funding because uh, you, can't, you can't organize if you don't have resources. Um, yeah. They have to come from somewhere. 
But no. at the same time, yeah. I think we have to be fairly clear that these institutions have mixed agendas at best. Uh-huh. And if we look at who's on the board of trustees, a lot of these organizations are the same people that were funding foreclosures um, in black and oh. brown communities as well. Yes, yes. Talk about it. Yes, Michael. Absolutely. Um, this is one of the, this is I think one of the complicating things, right, in terms of moving forward. This issue that you said that we need at some level funding, but we need to be much more strategic and to think a lot a lot more critically um, about who sits on these boards and where does this money actually come from. Um, I think that's going to be crucial moving forwards. Um, I've worked with foundations now on and off for a couple of decades, and they're very, very progressive um, um, activists in those foundations of all races and ethnicities. Um, Uh And they are our allies, but we have to be strategic in how we think about resource acquisition. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things also to always be mindful of is they're being strategic with us. Always. Absolutely. This is, as, yep, as somebody, the, the year before graduate school, I, I mean, I thought I was going to be, I, I actually was really interested in nonprofit work and was going to work in the foundation. So I, I basically did uh, two different fellowships and interned in two different foundations, which was really eye-opening for me. Um, but they're always, in terms of very strategic about what organizations they approach, who they approach, how long, um, are, is there going to be a relationship with a specific organization? So all of that all, always happens from their side. So it's also necessary um, from the other side that we also employ kind of a, a, to be very strategic about our relationship with them. One of the, I think, problems that's been increased that you, that you alluded to a few minutes earlier that we have to also be strategic about is almost in some ways an illogical and cultural problem. That's the short time horizons. <laughs> And one of the implications of the neoliberalism we have both written about is the emphasis on sort of market values, market strategies, uh, market Uh market processes. And particularly in the U.S., even more than other places in the world, though this is becoming more the global norm, is we're we're focused on the next quarterly, you know, um, balance statement. And Uh as you suggested, there is one of the very strong fights we have to have is every time you apply for a grant, whether it's a scholarly grant or an activist NGO grant, what are your deliverables? Well, deliverable. uh, and yes. when are they going to be deliverable next quarter? You know, you know, give us a quarterly framework for what progress you're going to make. And as you pointed uh-huh. out, uh, to use a euphemistic phrase from another culture, um, struggle is a long march. Uh, it, <laughs> it doesn't yes. happen overnight, and no. there's many setbacks. Uh, there's more setbacks than there are advances until you, you know, you you, you win breakthroughs. Right. So we have to do some education, not just with boards and with uh, funders, but with ourselves, to not expect mm-hmm. quick results. Mm-hmm. We're in this for the that's long run if we're lucky. If we're if we're lucky, I think that's I think that's one of the I think that's one of the greatest. Uh, kind of misconceptions about this traditional civil rights narrative that it that, you know that it starts basically in '54 with Brown and that it basically culminates right in '64 and in '65 with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and it's the the reason why I think it's really problematic is it it it, it basically kind of packages civil rights nicely. It basically says that it like it's like it's a decade long people marching in the streets and this this type of this type of civil rights like movement right this type of civil rights movement gets the change that we want right and it also at some level it says that there's kind of this good north this benevolent north and a bad backward south right that there's some good people and there's some bad people and i, I and to me i think the problem with it is that it misses it misses 
and it misses how long things are and misses how the complexity in terms of kind of the very much the racism that existed in the north as well as the south um and misses how much complicated it, it, complicated rights movements and justice is in this in like in this country and it also misses kind of how complex the black liberation agenda was um and how the agenda that we have, right, I mean, at least that came out in terms of the so-called traditional civil rights agenda was constituted in part because of a different type of agenda, too. That without without kind of different different visions of rights, of different visions of black liberation, we would not have gotten the one that we actually kind of, that ended up being the kind of the mainstream vision of civil rights. One of the sort of eye-opening aspects of working on blacks in and all the left um, was the... I mean, I sort of knew this, but I didn't, hadn't seen systematic work on it until I started uh, reading for the book, was the work of the th- on the radical South, um, that the South, we always think about the radical North and the backward South. Well, the radical South was, was powerful, and the work of people like Linda Gilmore shows that. And, of course, growing up in Chicago, I had no illusions about the benevolence of Northern racism, but (laughs) (laughs) the work of scholars such as Martha Biondi makes that very, very very clear. Uh, Being in a New York housing project could be no better than being one in Atlanta in the Mm. 1940s and 1950s, and in some ways could be even more vicious because the corporate um, aspect was was at least as stark, if not starker, um, in Northern racism. Right, right. So what's next on the horizon for Associate Professor Francis? <laughs> um, I think for me, if I can, if I'm, I'm going to do this quick plug. Um, U- UW next year has a really exciting seminar being planned. Um, so last year, my colleague and I, um, Jack Turner, who's a theorist of race um, at the University of Washington, we applied in high, at high hopes for this um, uh, the Sawyer Seminar grant from the Mellon um, Foundation and actually got it. Our proposal um, at the time in which we got funding for was to do rate, uh, comparative racializations and capitalism. Um, and so what this is essentially um, is that over the course of the year 2017 to 2018 um, is that our faculty, um, our students, and outside people will be immersed in discussions, readings, and conversations with about 15 visiting speakers. Um, and so the, these will be all public talks, but de- deliberately focused um, on presenting a global and historical approach to issues um, of capitalism and racialization. Our focus here in thinking about, um, or at least proposing the seminar on race and capitalism obviously comes out from so much of the work, writing, and thinking I've done with you, Michael, uh, but like, in, in, but in, in really in trying to kind of push this narrative further and to get more people in the academy um, w- to talk about this intersection, right? That we can't understand um, kind of the development of race, especially in this country, without a focus on the construction of capitalism, and that we can't understand capitalism as so many people have tried to do, um, especially kind of this renewed interest in capitalism over the past few years without studying race. That it's impossible. And so this the seminar is going to be organized by the Washington Institute for the Study of Inequality and Race um, and the Simpson Center and also the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies, which I am also a member of at the University of Washington. We're going to focus on the intersection between race and capitalism through the historical case studies of the United States, the Philippines, Brazil, and South Africa. 
and so some of the questions we're going to be interested in is kind of how processes of race making fueled capitalism at its onset, how systems of racial domination led to the building of global empires, and how racial and capitalist orders are linked theoretically, historically, and empirically. It's a big task. We're hoping to bring in some really good, interesting people who are doing work and are trying to interrogate that intersection. But I'm really excited. So that's 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 what's on the horizon for you, Dove, and race and capitalism. Well, I hope, and I'm sure this will be the case since we are working on some of this together, that we be able to uh, advertise these events and these uh, programs on the Racing Capitalism website, which will be going live in the first months of 2017. Oh, yes, ab- absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this. And the more people that we can like draw into this orbit who are interested in exploring different aspects of this domestically and globally, the better. Outstanding. And, f- and unlike what we have been doing so far, I think I want to end on this optimistic note. Uh, Thank you, (laughs) Professor Francis. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot.